This podcast is of a sensitive nature and the discussion will contain information that some might find triggering, disturbing or traumatizing. Discretion is advised. I'm Doreen Lopesha and welcome to my new podcast venture where I will be covering just about anything that is of interest to me. Being as curious as I am, I love telling people's stories and at the same time strive to educate and to enlighten and possibly even to enrage. My stories will have a strong link to news as this is also something I'm very passionate about. Now before I chat to my guest, I want to start off this podcast with the story of Lauren Dickerson, the South African mother who made international headlines when she killed her three children shortly after emigrating with her family to New Zealand. Although this podcast is not about Lauren or her story, it forms a crucial part of my discussion and the shared experience from my guest. If you've not been keeping tabs on the Lauren Dickerson story, here's a short recap courtesy of the New Zealand Herald. In the matter of the Crown against Lauren Ann Dickerson, please place Lauren Ann Dickerson before the court. The Crown say that on the evening of the 16th of September 2021, in Timaru, Leonay Dickerson, aged six, and twins Maya and Carla Dickerson, aged two, died. Now they were asphyxiated by way of cable ties being applied uh, to the neck, uh, and the person responsible for that was their mother, a recent immigrant, uh, to uh, New Zealand from South Africa. Now when they failed uh, to die by way of the cable ties uh, being applied to their neck, the Crown say that the defendant smothered the girls with their blankets before she made an attempt on her own life. Lauren Dickerson was a loving mother and wife. She loved Leonay, Maya and Carla very much and yet she killed them. And as you've just heard, it was violent and it was prolonged. But afterwards, she put her girls in their beds, she tucked them in with their soft toys, she covered them up with their blankets, and then she took an overdose of pills trying to kill herself. But she failed. It's difficult to hear and to imagine. That's understandable because what Lauren Dickerson did was shocking and horrifying. What mother could do that to their children? But the truth is that Lauren Dickerson is a woman who longed to be a mother, who went through 17 rounds of IVF to have her three daughters. She wanted those children very much and she loved her family. On charge one, do 11 of you find the defendant, Lauren Ann Dickerson, guilty of murder? Not guilty of murder. Guilty of murder. On charge two. Guilty of murder. On charge three. Guilty of murder. As to the majority verdicts, are those the verdicts of all but one of you? Yes. I don't particularly have an opinion or a strong opinion about what Lauren had done because to me, it's not uncommon. It's something that happens on a regular basis. I work in a newsroom. I've really seen and heard it all. But my story today is closer to home. It's about a former colleague and, and a friend, Karina who worked with me at OFM in the Free State and later as marketing manager at Algoa FM. She felt such a connection with Lauren, having immigrated herself with her husband and children. Karina reached out to me during the Dickerson trial, which she watched closely, and she found the testimony and the arguments from the Crown, that we will call the state here in South Africa, uh, extremely triggering. So let me give you some background. At 26, Karina got married to a pilot. 
They had their first child at 30 and a few years after the birth of their second child, they emigrated to Alberta in Canada, 16,319 kilometers away from Quebec. Like Lauren, Karina was in a new country with young children, with a husband with a stressful job and no support. None whatsoever. It was on a normal sunny day when Karina thought she should kill her children and take her own life. A decision that not only unraveled her life, but saved it too. For the past few weeks, Karina and I have been chatting over time zones and she wanted to share her story with me. Having known her for so many years, I had some knowledge of her struggles. But when she reached out to me to really dig into what had really happened, I can say I'm very humbled that she entrusted her story onto me. The Karina I know is a fun-loving wild spirit who was a reservist in the South African police. She loves radio, still does, and I would be able to recognize her distinctive laugh in a crowded room full of strangers. Here's her story. Karina, I never understood the extent of what you went through, and I I know we are both hoping that the story will give listeners a better understanding of mental illness and how our minds can take us to powerful and very dark places. I want you to take me back to the first time the thoughts of death and suicide started to consume you. Since before we were born, it's in our DNA to survive. The first sperm to reach the egg. You want to get there. You want to survive. As a fetus, you cling to life. You're born and you start crying the moment you're hungry because you're afraid you might die. That's the basis of human life is that any life is that you want to survive. The mind of a major depressive person or a mind of a suicidal person, it's not. The only hope you have is actually death. Everything else seems futile, seems absolutely a waste. The sooner you can bring death to you, the better. I was in the South African police force for five years as a reservist, saw many suicide scenes, saw many unnatural deaths. The ability of someone to die the way they want to became an obsession with me, that we're all going to die, especially if you're in the police force and you're faced with this every day. Um, We're all going to die. It's just a matter of time. You don't see the joy in life. You don't understand why people can't see that. I look at my diary entries that I made when I was in the psychiatric unit. And I made entries like they kill horses, don't they? They put horses out of their suffering. Sure, that's really powerful stuff. I mean, you often hear older people say that they just want to go peacefully in their sleep. But I mean, who on earth would say, yes, I want to die in a car accident or get cancer and have a slow death? Nobody wants that. And we have no control over that. We cannot choose how we die. So that really makes sense to me. And I almost respect that in some way. I've never thought about it like that. But let's go to the beginning. You had an intrusive thought where you were thinking of taking your own life and taking your daughters with you. Now, an intrusive thought sounds self-explanatory, but I think in this context and for this conversation, it's important to hear from you how you experienced it. Literally a thought that comes out of nowhere. Um, And it's very common. Up to 90% of people get them regularly. Uh, So let me give you an example. You are busy washing the dishes. You hear your neighbor's dog yapping away. You're irritated with the dog. And all of a sudden you get 
the thought that I would stab that dog to death. You know, you'll actually, you won't do it. But the thought kind of comes up and you're like, <laughs> okay, that's a silly thought. <laughs> Let that pass. That was an intrusive thought. Now, if your brain is not well, if you're in a mental health crisis, if you, if you have a major depressive disorder, you tend to obsess about things. What happened in my case was when I had that intrusive thought, I immediately spoke out because I knew how obsessive my thoughts were around death and around suicide. Anything that I saw was something that I could kill myself with. I would pick up a, a rock and imagine shoving the rock down my throat. I would walk down the street and imagine stepping in front of a bus. It's just every single moment when you when you in active suicidality, everything you see is a way to die. Death becomes what you want and you strive for that. So if I had known at that stage what an intrusive thought was, I don't think I would have asked for help. Basically for two reasons. Firstly, because of what laid ahead for me, which I wasn't aware of, the, the mental health path and struggle um, and stigma, I think I just probably would have kept quiet, very much like Lauren did. But the problem with ideations and with thoughts is that they grow and they grow in silence. I think because she couldn't rely on Graham, she was all of a sudden without a support system. I think those thoughts just became extremely overwhelming for her. When I found out what an ideation was and what an intrusive thought was, I could educate myself a little bit more about mental health. I think Lauren, where she said in, a, in the trial, she mentioned that the thought popped up that she could kill her kids when they were, when they were being unruly that night, the night of the killings. So she had that intrusive thought, but she had no one to tell. And she's probably been obsessing about it for a while. We actually see that in the testimonies, that, that, that she was obsessing about uh, getting free and stepping away from the kids and getting Graham back and feeling that they, they'd made the wrong decision going to, to New Zealand. That intrusive thought became an obsession with her, which started brewing, and then when she snapped, it became a very real reality for her to lean into. It was certainly very brave of you to speak out. I mean, you reached out to a therapist, uh, you got to talk to someone, blow off some steam, you had the doctor-patient confidentiality thing going, and then all of a sudden, one afternoon, you found yourself at the back of a police van. Take me back to that day, Karina. I had an appointment with my counsellor the afternoon. I was just feeling down. It wasn't. It wasn't as if it was extremely terrible on that day. I just, in general, had very down emotions and by that time I have been um, starting to collect medications. I called in my death pack. So I had my medications ready. If I, if I finally decided to, uh, to give in to the suicidal ideations that I would have the medication needed to commit suicide. And just on that note, I want to, to, to emphasize, I see suicide as people not giving up, but people giving in. Uh, you are Constantly, I was constantly tormented with with death and with um, suicidal ideations and thoughts, and I didn't give up on life. I just got tired of fighting those thoughts, so I gave in. At the end of every session, I don't know if that's the same way in South Africa, but here, if you do have suicidal thoughts, you have to give a verbal contract 
to your counselor that you will keep yourself safe until the next time you meet with them. They call it contract for safety. So I couldn't contract for safety. I couldn't give her that, that confirmation that, I, that, that I, she will see me again. So I went, went home, we sat down, we were planning a trip to the Rockies and all of a sudden there was a knock at the door. And I looked outside and there were two RCMPs, so uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police officers standing by the door. And I immediately known that my counsellor had phoned the police. Everything just kind of froze in time. It was was horrible because now I'm completely exposed. My husband standing there, I have to admit, you know, what I've been saying to my counsellor. And uh, all of a sudden that confidentiality is now out in the open because I'm being faced with police officers at the door. And they came in, they introduced themselves. I gave the officer my my medication. Uh, I was in the reserve force with the South African Police Service. So it was the first time for me in the back of a police car. It's strange, like that drive down to the to the to the hospital felt like a relief for me. It almost felt like if as as if I don't have to fight these thoughts alone now. I'm going to get help. It's okay. So I was kind of relieved at that stage that I could openly say that I'm not okay. Sure. Okay, so now you were put into a room. And in my mind, if I think of psych ward, you know, I think Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest or Angelina Jolie in Girl Interrupted and people strapped in stray jackets. But it's very different. And I know that you even managed to see your children and husband during this time. But you shared with me that you actually got worse at the institution to the point where you skillfully started planning your next suicide attempt. The medication that they put me on made me extremely anxious. In my diary that I kept, I can't even recognize my own handwriting. My handwriting changed. Um, I had developed a stutter. I couldn't speak. I, did, I, 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 I spoke like that, like, um, like a uh, buffering, you would say. Um, it's, it, my, my whole body reacted to all the, the chemical changes that was going on in my brain. And together with that, my mood deteriorated. My thinking at the moment was to uh, jump off the roof at the hospital and to provide my for my family in that way, um, that they could actually sue the hospital uh, for my death. That way they would be set up financially. I wrote a suicide note and I went out on a path with my family um, to kind of go say goodbye to my kids, took them for ice cream, and then while we were walking and having the ice cream, the psych ward phoned my husband. I put my phone off at that stage. So what happened in the meantime, when I left the, the unit for my pass, um, the nurse went into my room, found my, my suicide note, which I left in my drawer. Clearly, they went through your stuff. I didn't, wasn't aware of it. Um, she found that. She started phoning me. I didn't answer my phone. They phoned my husband and said, I need to come back to the unit immediately. So um, I was kind of, I felt there was an invasion of my privacy. My plans were derailed. I couldn't jump off the roof as I planned. The psychiatrist just kind of shook her head and said, you know, it's, uh, she's now going to put me in an observation room. So that is a step up. I had no passes anymore. I wasn't allowed to go off the unit. Um, I could only go off the unit if I was accompanied by my husband. Um, otherwise, I could have visitors, but 
I wasn't allowed anywhere off the unit by myself. I stayed in a room that had uh, glass windows all around, just one small little bathroom. And I had a constant looking at me, observing me, watching my moves. Um, And anyone could look into my room at any time to see what was going on. There are only two observation rooms on on the entire unit. And my clothes and everything was taken away. So the real psych patient view view that you see, except for the straight jacket. I didn't have a straight jacket. That's kind of where things started getting blurry for me um, at that point. I can't remember too much. They obviously upped my dosages. They put me on lithium. They put me on all kinds of different medications. And uh, I can't remember too much of my stay after that. But I think I was in the observation room for a good six weeks. And then I started seeing my kids less. Uh, my husband didn't come and pick me up for passes um, for a long period of time. He would not come around. Up until then, and still today, my kids are my entire world. So um, that definitely added added to a, a further spiraling of my mood. Let's talk quickly about your husband. Almost 12 years of marriage, two children, who were, by the way, both born in Port Elizabeth. Obviously, this must have been a shock for him. You did have thoughts about killing yourself and taking your children with you, his children. I can imagine how traumatic this must have been for a partner, notwithstanding the trauma you yourself were going through. We never really had a very strong bond since we arrived in Canada. We had cracks in the marriage, but, you know, true to South Africans or Afrikaans style, you know, you you married for life. This is your partner in front of God. You promise to be together. Even if we don't have a great relationship, this is just the way life's going to be. We both rated our marriage like one or a two out of 10. So, I mean, we both knew that we were, our marriage was in trouble. I then told him that I have these intense suicidal thoughts and I'm really down and uh, he surprised kind of shocked me he said well if you if you want to do it I'm not going to stop you that hit me hard that made me realize that I am really alone it's me and I've got two little girls to be responsible for because he's a pilot he was flying and often away from home and I'm in this foreign country no support system no one to talk to and I think that kind of accelerated my uh, descent and my breakdown when I was admitted into hospital um, you know I could see the support wasn't really there he didn't really understand and then what happened was I had that intrusive thought of taking my kids with me. Child Protective Services were alerted. That's where things started escalating for me. They were told that I threatened to kill myself and my kids. So obviously this becomes a concern of the government. They were sending um, social workers to the house. My husband under a lot of strain and he said, you know, if they're going to take the kids away from us because of you, then I'll leave you. I'm taking the kids and I will leave you. You talk about Afrikaans style, uh, which is something I can obviously relate to. We have a similar background and without generalizing, uh, we know that there are many religious groups, not only within the Afrikaans community, who has a very negative understanding of suicide, uh, calling it a mortal sin, condemning you to hell and When we were growing up, it was not something you talked about. Suicide was like the most shocking thing to hear about uh, when we were children. I know you are a Christian, Karina, a believer. What was your relationship like with God during this time? What I do found interesting and kind of heartwarming is how my faith carried me through that. 
And that was also something that, that my psychiatrist found very interesting is being a Christian, a lot of her Christian patients felt that they couldn't commit suicide because of what the belief in Christianity that you will be doomed um, if you do commit suicide. I didn't see it that way. I saw it as God being an understanding father and he's with me in my struggle. And when I do give in to my thoughts, I will be with him. I looked forward to that. I looked forward to the peace of being in heaven and being with my heavenly father. And I had this peace in my soul that God is there and is helping me and he's pulling me through. So now at this point, you started to self-harm and I wanted to touch on that a bit. I think it's something that's very misunderstood. I read somewhere that it's a a non-suicidal way of injuring yourself or a way of transferring your emotional pain into physical pain so that you can actually feel something. And I know of people who do self-harm and they are not necessarily in a psych ward, but they do it in secret and it's not necessarily a cry for help. It's a way of controlling your overwhelming mental stress. I think the sensation for that was just to kind of ease that itch of suicides like I one of my self-harms came so close to the vein in my arm that I could see the vein it was like one slice further and I would cut a major I would say artery probably in my arm and I just sat there just slowly just slicing layer by layer by layer not feeling anything it's, it's as if the even the sensation of pain is numb it's it's very strange and yes it does start off as a thought but later on it becomes kind of a coping mechanism if, if I get too overwhelmed I would just cutting and just focusing on that takes away this overwhelm thought in my mind. I burned myself with uh, boiling water. I burned myself with a hair straightener. I would find anything to cut myself with. A needle, a tin or something. I remember them saying, giving me tips saying, you know, uh, take elastic band and put that around your wrist and hit yourself with the elastic band or go hold a piece of ice and get that same pain sensation. And I would hold it and and because self-harm was a compromise for me, it didn't do the trick. I continued self-harming for probably about six months after being discharged from the psych ward. So you only did it for six months. After being discharged, why did you stop? It kind of gave my husband, who at that stage was filing for divorce and sole custody of my kids, a weapon to use against me to show how unstable I was. So I had to find new coping mechanisms. I had to find new ways to cope with these intense urges and self-harm just just wasn't doing it for me anymore. And as quickly as it started, it also stopped. I just like, "Mm, don't want to do this anymore. Karina, let's go back to Lauren Dickinson for a moment. Um, It is because of her trial that you reached out to me to tell your story and we were privately talking about how she was being crucified in the media and how the conversation around postpartum depression should be at the forefront. We spoke about uh, two Eastern Cape mothers who recently killed their children and then themselves and the reason for that was said to be poverty and yes, that could have been the reason but it could also have been something completely different. It's like we as people, or rather as a society, we want an explanation, a reason, a why. You know, if there's a suicide, we want a letter, something to make sense of the tragedy. But in the recent Eastern Cape cases, everyone poured their hearts out to these two families. But let me tell you, 
If those mothers survived like Lauren, there would have been no conversation about poverty. People would have probably treated them exactly the same, with outrage and contempt. Just because Lauren survived, we crucify her and now all of a sudden she's evil and she's this and she's that. You can't control anything outside of yourself and your immediate surroundings. She cannot control how the media is going to react. She cannot control what people are going to say or think. And people are the cruelest, cruelest beings. They can be so cruel and so judgmental. And I think it's because we try to cover up our own insecurities and our own faults by highlighting those of others. What would you say to Lauren if if you could have a face-to-face conversation with her now? If I could speak to Lauren and I consider where I was, I would sincerely say to her that I'm so sorry for her that she woke up in hospital after the events. I can just imagine how devastating that must have been for her. And and I don't mean it that I wish you were dead, Lauren. I mean it in the sense of I know that you felt this was your way out. And I'm so sorry it didn't work out for you like that. You are not the only person who's showing support for Dickerson because there's a private Facebook group consisting of just under 2,000 members who want the judge to be lenient in sentencing, which is coming up in December. I recently joined the group where it's mostly mothers who talk about postpartum depression and they have a lot of grace for Lauren, just like you do. New Zealand journalist based in Christchurch, Jake Kenny, who followed this trial from the beginning to the end, was a guest on the Newsable podcast, also available on Spotify, where he spoke about the group and why it caused such a stir. The group sent Dickerson a care package to Hillmorton Hospital um, with some South African food and some comfort items. And Dickerson actually responded to this by sending them a handwritten letter thanking them for their for their love and support, is what she said, in, in what she called a, a difficult time. She also sent them a painting uh, of a sunflower, which has become a bit of a symbol for the group, and a photograph of uh, three teddy bears um, with the children's names on them, which she told the group that she has been sleeping with at night. So You were mentioning people and how cruel we can be, and when news broke about this photograph of the teddy bears, the public again ripped Lauren to shreds. So many people expressed their anger and were appalled that she dared to even say their names, let alone have them on teddy bears sleeping with her. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, think of Viktor Frankl, the German Nazi camp survivor, who said that even in the death camps, you know, he looked for small things to be grateful for. And I hear that, that Lauren enjoys gardening, that she started up a garden and there at the psych um, hospital and and I hope that she finds peace in that. She can't change history, she can't change what she did, she can't probably not imagine staying in jail for so long. All she can do right now I think is for her to focus on herself, find joy in her gardening and heal. She lost three little girls at her hand, she also lost them. And she is not, not only has to deal with that grief, she has to deal with the guilt. Well, your story was obviously not in the media, but you do live in a relatively small community and, and people gossip. What was it like for you at the time? I was uh, shunned by the community as soon as the word got out. All of a sudden, I'm hearing that it said that I threatened to kill my kids. Then all of a sudden it was, I had plans to kill my kids. I had a diary in which... So everything just started snowballing. People just started adding to the story. My my marriage started to crumble. My husband pulled away. We went into a lengthy court battle where he tried to convince 
the courts that I was unstable and insane and I can't be a good mother. I had no support, no friends, isolation. It's, I remember actually writing a blog where I said, just if you are struggling, just keep quiet. Just please don't tell anybody because it gets so much worse. Why do you think you just woke up one day with an intrusive thought and then all hell broke loose? I mean, what were the root causes here, the triggers? Have you even been able to establish that? I mean, you don't just wake up one day and randomly decide to kill your kids and yourself. took me 38 years to face up to childhood trauma that I had, um, sexual assault trauma that I had, working in the police force and everything that you see in the police force, losing very dear people close to me in the police force. So lots of trauma that I went through, but never really saw any of that as trauma, just as part of life that's happening. And when it caught up to me, I had the breakdown. And I had to deal with that. I had to deal with all that trauma I went through before I could heal. Okay, now I don't want every person with trauma now thinking that they are going to have a breakdown. But you and I share some history from our days back in Bloemfontein. And I've been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And I've noticed now that I'm in my 40s, I tend to deal with it like an onion. You know, the older we get, the more layers of the onion we have to peel to get to the inside. And the more onions you chop, the more tears and discomfort there would be, right? I love that onion analogy. That's very, very true. Um, We are just all complex layers of events and happenings. And um, they do make you cry when you start pulling them. Great analogy there. Now, Lauren Dickerson's parents flew over to New Zealand for a trial and gave her their full support, even though she took the lives of their grandchildren. But if anybody's going to be advocating for you, you would hope it's the people who brought you into this world, although it almost seems ironic in this case. I saw that in her parents' statements that they issued after the verdict is that they want people to be aware of mental health issues and that Lauren was a victim of her mental health state, be it uh, postpartum depression, major depressive episode. And yes, I, I get that. You are a victim of that. It's a disease. It's like I said earlier, it's like a cancer that grows in you and if you're not going to address it and you're not going to go through the proper channels of of fixing it and medication and and counseling it can kill you but the thing with mental health it can also kill those around you even those you love so dearly as your own children your parents flew from bloemfontein to canada when your situation had already deteriorated this must have been a difficult trip for them under the circumstances. How much do you even remember about them being there? I don't really remember that much of their visits. I remember in the beginning of my stay in the psych unit, I didn't want to let them know, mainly because I felt it wasn't that serious, that I don't want to worry them. You know, they they were getting older. Um, I didn't want to be a burden on their mind. So my husband let them know. So I was kind of upset that he did. I didn't want them to worry about me. And at that stage, we didn't know how badly it was going to deteriorate. I know from my medical files that my dad had a session. I think my mom was also in the session, but the doctor mainly noted what my dad had to say. Um, I think my dad kind of advocated for me, but kind of saying who I am. I, I forgot very much who I was at that stage, couldn't remember my former self. The, what the doctors saw in hospital was not who I am. There was no one really 
fending for me. There was no one coming in saying, you know, yeah, no, this is not how she is. Instead, they were told that I have, uh, I can't keep a job. I struggle to build friendships. So all of these ideas led the doctors to believe that I had borderline personality disorder, especially when I started self-harming, because that's one of the traits of borderline. And my dad came there and I know from the medical files that he was very adamant that it couldn't be borderline personality disorder, mainly because someone with that personality disorder would not have been able to obtain a master's degree at university, would not have been able to necessarily keep a job like the one I had at Algoa FM or, you know, be so self-sufficient up until the age of 39 with no symptoms. So my dad came over with that knowledge and I, I'm, I'm grateful for that because at that stage, I couldn't remember who I was. I, uh, I was a shell of myself, and and there wasn't anyone really to to stand up for me, to to vouch for who I really am. So when your husband started divorce proceedings, you had another dilemma on your plate. Uh, but again, people who know the real you came out to bat for you yet again, just like your dad. Tell me about that. My psychiatrist thought that I might have have borderline personality disorder. That is basically a diagnosis that they give you when you borderline crazy and I hate the word crazy I really do that's the closest they can give it's kind of like yeah no this is the last line before we kind of give up on you so I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder traits traces of it I had a friend someone who worked with me at Algoa FM who uh, kept on saying she doesn't believe it she doesn't believe it and she kept on reminding me who I was. She kept on reminding me about the stuff we did at Algoa FM, the bra bag we did, the uh, Madiba card we built, all those kind of things. She kept on reminding me and saying, I worked with you. I know you. I, I know who you are. Don't believe this. And she actually sent me on a, on a, on a mission to um, find affidavits from people in South Africa who knew me. One friend of mine who's a psychiatric nurse, actually a lecturer at the university there in Kabeha, um, um, Aniki, she wrote me a, an affidavit saying, no, she never saw those traits. My family doctor in Port Elizabeth, Dr. Vian Fallerman, he wrote a letter saying, didn't see any of those traits. My former boss at Algoa FM, all of those people, she said, go out. If, if you find those people and, you, and they can tell you that you had the traits, then you can believe it. And um, they wrote those affidavits specifically for, for my divorce because my husband was trying to show that I have this personality disorder. So for the court documents, I was able to go and find this. And she, because she reminded me of who I was, I could start believing in who I was. Connection, so important. Have connections with people. We are so easily in this world nowadays just chained to our electronic devices. We don't get to know people around us. We don't have that connection with, with people anymore. But find your tribe and let them help you. You'll be surprised at how many people actually want to help. If you tell them pride is a big thing, you always have to be okay, don't you? But if you put that aside and you can say, hey, I'm struggling, you'll be amazed at how many people will actually be able to help you. Needless to say, your tribe, as you call it, uh, was crucial in your recovery. But I hope you know that you are ultimately the one who did the work 
and it changed the course of your life significantly. You are now the president of the Canadian Mental Health Association in your area. You're back in radio, what you love so much. You have a new man in your life and your children are growing up to be beautiful and grounded human beings. I'm so grateful to to be able to tell the story and to help with not only awareness around mental health, but making sure that where we live here in Canada, where I am as president of the Canadian Mental Health Association of Northern Alberta, I make sure that there are sufficient programs available to um, people struggling. Uh, that's important is that, that we, we create connection networks, that we have peer support, that a former patient has a say now in, in how the programs are presented to make sure that we reach our goal. Now, since this has been a success story, in a sense, I wanted to chat to Karina's oldest daughter, Nia, who was born in PE. Uh, but as you will hear, she sounds as Canadian as ever. She's only 16 years old and wise beyond her I asked her about the impact her mother's breakdown had on her. My mom has never been someone to hide anything. She has always been unapologetically herself. Because of this, we often talk about the struggles she faces with mental health and she shares a lot of stories, advice and wisdom. It has obviously been a hard journey for us all, but the light at the tunnel is so bright it's almost blinding. Nia, what is your opinion as a teenager, you know, on mental health and the challenges being faced by the youth today? I think that with modern youth and people in general, there are surface problems and there are inside problems. And most people can cover up their surface problems in a way that nobody can understand or make sure that nobody sees that they're struggling. But on the inside, that's something that you can't control. You can't just magically fix it. You can't hide it from yourself. It's your own feelings, your own struggles. And that's what mental health is. It's mental. It's on the inside. It's the struggles that people face every day, every night. It's difficult. It's hard. But there is a way to prosper and to make the most out of everything, just like my mom has showed. Nia, I've known your mom for many, many years, and I can tell you a few stories about her. But I want you to describe her to me. Who's your mom, Karina? My mom has always been different from other mothers, whether it was the way she packed our lunch kits or the way she did her hair. She's always been unique. Then again, it is biased for me to say that because uh, she's my mother and I love her very much. Another thing that made her very different was the struggles that she faced. And not just that, but the strength, diligence and resilience she showed to be able to push through those struggles. I've seen my mom struggle, but I've also seen her prosper and She is an amazing woman, a great mom, a super good friend to all, and ultimately my role model. Nia, I want to wrap up this podcast with a happy ending, so please share with me your favorite memory with your mother. My favorite memory spent with my mom and my sister is definitely the night that We had an amazing Morgan's Bay beach house all to ourselves. And 
and we sang as if we were the only people on earth. We danced like animals. We feasted like kings. That night, there were no worries, no issues, just joy and love with my amazing family. If you or anybody you love is struggling with mental health issues, postpartum depression, or suicidal thoughts, contact the Suicide Crisis Line in South Africa on 0800-567-567 or the South African Depression and Anxiety Group on 0800-21-22-23. You can also send an SMS to 31393 or 32312 and a counsellor will call you back. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week.